All right, good morning. Um, I want to head off one of the questions in the Q&A immediately, which I'm anticipating being, Brad, did you read the passage before you decided to preach on that passage for Mother's Day? The answer is yes, and I still didn't make that connection, actually. Um, it was not until Friday that I realized, like, oh, man, this is, this is complicated. Um, in fact, I, I, I kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to the idea of Hallmark uh, influencing the church calendar in general. And so typically, like, I have never preached a Mother's Day or a Father's Day sermon, quote-unquote, before. Um, and this is not going to be that either. Um, however, it does, man, uniquely uh, tie into and help us to see a passage that is like I said, very complicated and deep and nuanced in ways that I don't know that we, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be as potent without it. So we're going to lean into this opportunity, and I'm going to thank you in advance for understanding the gospel enough to give me mercy and forgiveness. Um, also, if there's ever a, uh, a live illustration to pray for your pastor, this is it. Um, okay, so what Paul is d- doing here in this passage is something that typically as a pastor, I would tell you all not to do. That makes it a little bit challenging, right? And what I mean by that is specifically in verse 24 when he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. You typically do not want to read scripture uh, through the lens of allegory because what that does is it kind of enables you to hijack what God is intending to do with his word for your own purposes. But what Paul is doing here, well, first of all, when you're when you're the Apostle Paul, you get a, you get a free pass, okay? Um, and it, but his stating very explicitly this is an allegory is actually, like, like he's saying, I'm not doing that for my own purposes. This is actually for something very, very related. And what he's doing here is he's trying to contrast and not say that this is the entirety of what this, this narrative and this, this historical example of Hagar and Sarah is about, but he's trying to contrast two principles that are absolutely at play within that broader story. And he's, what he's saying here is that in these two women, we see represented two different covenants, right? Two different, uh, two different communities or relationships with one another and with God, or two different ways to live, Two different ways of seeing the world, seeing reality even. And so to, in the spirit of Paul and trying to use allegory to illustrate something, I was trying to think of, my, of an example I might have in my own life and experience that, that would be a good allegory for how he's using this and how, how stark the contrast is. Uh, thankfully, I actually had a, an example that's pretty top of mind. Uh, I've mentioned before that I'm ADD, and I, I mean that not by just by personality. I mean that um, like I've been clinically diagnosed with ADD, and I remember it was 12-ish years ago now, the first time I started taking medication for being ADD. It was fascinating because uh, I remember very vividly the, the exact moment, in fact. Um, I remember getting in the car, and we were, Hannah and I were driving somewhere from our apartment in St. Louis, and... As we're getting in the car, I, I said something to her like, I wonder, like, if I, is it going to be a noticeable difference? Like, am I going to notice really at all? Or is it going to be more like as I look, pat, look back at the, how the day went, I realized like, oh, yeah, actually, that was helpful. Um, it was only about a block and a half to two blocks away from our apartment that I came to a stop sign, and I stopped at the stop sign, and then I didn't start going again. 
Uh, and Hannah and I was like, is, is everything okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I said, it's working. Uh, and, and what I started to try to articulate to her was that if you're going 90 miles an hour down the road, it was like somebody slammed on the brakes and now we're only going 25. And that sounds like, well, that sounds like less effective or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that doesn't quite communicate it. But it felt like I finally had the chance to think my own thoughts, that I wasn't losing time just by trying to exert the willpower to like, force my brain to focus on a given thing or in a given direction. And I actually, I, I told, what I told Hannah was like, I think I have, I have time. I feel like I have a gun to my head right now. Like, what is this? And I started getting a little bit frustrated. I was like, is this how everybody else sees the world? Are you serious? And I started getting frustrated too. I'm like, how have we not cured cancer yet? Like, this is so much easier. Um, not that I felt like I could cure cancer, but like if smart people live, felt in this way and, and saw the world through this lens, like, how has that not happened yet? Like, what can we not, like, we can do anything. It was a fundamental change in perspective, right? Now, a prescription is different from what I'm talking about here. That's why it's an allegory, right? A prescription requires zero change in somebody because it just, you just take a pill. You just have to set an alarm to remember to do that, right? But it's temporary. That change of perspective is temporary. The promise of freedom, on the other hand, this is something... It's, a, it's, as, it's an even more fundamental different, different, fundamentally different way of seeing the world. But it requires a death to self that is, frankly, utterly foreign to us in modern society. That said, it is still, it is, it is even better than any kind of a prescription, obviously, uh, because it is an invitation to live in and live into a new creation that is actually objectively true. Like, this is the new reality in Christ. This is what Paul has been describing in Galatians this entire time. And what he's saying with this analogy is, like, if you are in the, the God's covenantal relationship with him and with one another, then don't live as if you're not. Don't go back because you would, it's, it's not good. You would never want to go back if you have the choice. And so let's, let's, let's jump into this, this dichotomy that he sets up. And the first half of it is, is about Hagar, um, a maidservant, a slave woman who is striving, is, is, is representing striving in the flesh, okay? So let's catch up. If, you, if you've been here, you know we've been talking about Abraham, that, that, um, that moment in the history of God's people, Paul references a lot, both implicitly and explicitly in Galatians. And what he's referring to is a moment when years after God has promised Abraham that, that if you leave the land of your father and you go to this promised land that I'm going to give your descendants, I will make of you a great nation and I will make your, nation, make your name great. And I will give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and grains of sand in the sea. And so this is happening years after God has promised this, but there's no heir, there's no son. They still haven't had any children at all yet. Still nothing. His wife, Sarah, gets impatient. And she has this brilliant idea that she takes to her husband, Abraham, and he's, she says, and she takes matters into her own hands and says, hey, here's, here's what we're going to do. We need to continue our family. We're getting very old. I, you should sleep with um, our maidservant, Hagar, 
and when she has a son, they will be our heir. Now, any guy in the room is like, no, there's, this, is a, this is a trap. No, don't do this, right? And Abraham, for some reason, agrees. Now, let me, let me also say that, um, culturally speaking, this was not as crazy of an idea to them as it seems. Like, this is actually how um, people sometimes solve that problem. This is not just pure desperation talking, though desperation is absolutely involved. And so, when it works, when Hagar becomes present, pregnant, um, Sarah is livid. She is jealous, and it doesn't, it doesn't meet the longing that she thought it would. It actually just creates way more problems, and so she tells Abraham, cast her out. Before Ishmael is even born, she says, cast her out. That is what verse 31 is referring to, or verse 30, when, when Paul says, what, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Abraham, to his credit, initially resisted and said, like, if the first part was a trap, this is definitely a trap. But God actually says, it's okay. Let her leave, because I'm going to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. Okay? Now, you'll notice that as I'm describing this, Hagar is not the one striving in this situation. It's actually Sarah. The point that Paul is making, though, is that the fruit of our striving, the fruit of our saving ourselves, of, of a trying to achieve our own dignity, value, and worth, of, of whatever it is that, thinks, that you think is going to make you happy and promise the life that you've, and promises the life that you've, you've always wanted by doing it on our own strength and not resting in God, it will bear fruit we don't intend. And that's actually Ishmael. So when, when Paul is saying, these women are two covenants, one is from Mount Sinai. Now Hagar is from Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. When God tells Abraham, I'm going to care for, for Hagar and Ishmael, he goes to Hagar and says, as for, um, let's see, where is it? Oh, he says, I'm going to uh, multiply your offspring so that, you can, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So it's, he's actually kind of giving a, um, almost like a watered-down version of what he promises Abraham. He says, Hagar, I'm looking after you, and I'm going to care for you, and it is equally not based on your merit. And he promises her that, she will, that he will um, bless her and Ishmael. But toward the end of this promise, he says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. What Paul is saying in connecting all of this together with Hagar and, and, and allowing her name to kind of represent and embody all this is that the fruit of our striving and self-salvation will always backfire in the same way that Ishmael is literally, is, is predicted by God to do what Sarah did for him to be born in the first place. That striving, that using uh, every, uh, everyone's hand against him, his hand against everyone, that is how Sarah acted. And that's the fruit it bears. 
Now, I'm sure you can think of all kinds of examples of really brilliant ideas that sound like a really good idea in the moment that in hindsight are like, oh, that was bad, actually. That was a terrible and horrible mistake. And we, we do this with different phrases or different attitudes and, and language all the time. Sometimes we even baptize them in Christian-sounding language to, to make them sound like a better idea, like this is, was God's plan all along. Or, you know, that, well, the one I love to pick on the most is this idea that you've probably heard at some point, maybe even seriously, as if it was a good idea, um, this idea that God helps those who help themselves. How many of you have heard that growing up at some point, like if you grew up in church or as a Christian? Okay. I want to uh, reassure you that that is as unbiblical as it is anti-gospel, okay? That's not in Scripture at all, and it's also a terrible idea. (laughs) Because if you think that you are effectively helping yourself enough to, uh, to earn God's help, then you will be puffed up, and you will think very much of yourself in ways that are exaggerated and feed your ego But if you are aware of your inability to help yourself, in other words, if you are unaware or if you are very aware of your helplessness, then you will feel beat down because why would God help somebody who who can't help themselves? This makes, this this sees God as somebody like like kind of a, well, a, a divine fairy godmother who encourages you on your way and grants you wishes when you ask. But we are the ones that still have to do the work. This turns Jesus into a mascot. It turns him into a, we're in Boulder County, so a life coach, right? Maybe even an, an ADD prescription. It's temporary. It's not eternal. It's not faithful. Maybe it's not as obvious as this idea of God helps them who helps themselves, but I've been thinking about this other phrase that I, I use a lot and is less obviously problematic um, but actually shows us and it kind of is almost this like mirror into our hearts and to turn, depending on how we use it, okay? And that's the phrase of saying like, so-and-so really gets it, right? Maybe you're in a, it's in a work situation or in the context of family or community, like so-and-so really gets this product we're trying to design. They understand what we're trying to do. Um, or somebody really gets community or hospitality, right? They really get it. Here's the problem with that, and this is where we find out how we're actually using that phrase, because it's not necessarily bad. But if the it is the, the being under the law, the law that we are under, right? Um, if the it is the law, whether that's yours or God's, then not getting it becomes a functional justification for dismissing, condemning, or even attacking somebody else. Like, they don't get it. Pfft, don't bother. They don't get it, so I'm going to help them get it. They don't get it, and so I need to show other people that they don't get it. Like, ooh, that's, that's self-salvation right there. But if the it they don't get is the promise of freedom, if it's grace, then it becomes a justification to pursue, to forgive, and to attack, not to dismiss, condemn, or attack. So let's, let's talk about that with, with Sarah the Free, which is all about resting in the promise. Let me re- refresh um, our memory on verse 27 because this, this is the climax, this is the absolute climax of Paul's argument in Galatians. It is him actually pulling from uh, the prophet Isaiah and quoting this 
which is hearkening back to and interpreting and understanding. So it's, it's Scripture, quoting Scripture, referring to Scripture. It's super, it's awesome, right? Paul says this, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Fourteen years after Ishmael is born, Isaac is born. Despite all the odds being stacked against uh, Sarah and Abraham, including being over a hundred years old, um, Sarah being, it, it, it's, it was very, it's very explicit in Genesis, it says that she's well past the age, uh, the ability to uh, bear children. God, God's promise bears the fruit that he promised. What Paul is saying in, in this is not if you just wait long enough, if you just trust God long enough that he's going to give you what you want. What this is saying and what, the way Paul is using this is that when he's referring to the barren one or the desolate one and he is co-opting of this, he's saying that God is especially fond of and faithful to those who are helpless and compromised and unable and have absolute zero ability to save themselves, achieve their dignity, value, and worth, or otherwise fill the God-sized hole in their hearts. That God's faithfulness and our salvation is utterly, purely, inextricably, unavoidably by grace. Against all the odds. So if we put Hagar and Sarah together and we kind of look at them side by side, we have a, uh, a slide here that's got just to, to kind of help disentangle the narrative flow of, of these verses, like just taking the language and putting it side by side. You see what Paul is doing here. You see that he is contrasting being under this covenant of the law and this covenant of the gospel, under being a slave versus being free, according to, living according to the flesh or resting in and through the promise Everything, like this, he, he is bringing his entire argument in Galatians to its climax. And it's this, that if striving in the flesh sees God and salvation as, as God helps those who help themselves, then the promise is God just helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. And that's all of us. That if you actually listen to the laws, he says in, in, in verse 21, he's like, tell me, do you who desire to be under the law, do you actually listen to it? Have you tried this? If you, if you have, you know that you are actually helpless. That's part of the point of the law. It's to drive us in our need to God. So then why would you live that way? Don't live that way. You can't unsee freedom. You can't unsee the love and the grace that you have experienced. Do not live as if it's not true, if it is. Whereas God before, in according to being under the law, is a mascot or a life coach, this God is a savior and a redeemer. Instead of the work being on us and on our shoulders, our work is resting in his promise of freedom. That is a fundamentally different way of viewing the world, of viewing yourself, of viewing God, of viewing each other, of viewing life now or eternal. And is it not hard 
to actually look through that lens. I think if we're honest, it is very difficult to live that way. And that's part of the reason why this is so timeless. Why Galatians is so helpful and why we need it so badly. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it means. Like, what does it, live to, what does it mean to live like Isaac? What does it li- mean to live as the children of promise? Let me reread verses 28 through 31 again. Now you brothers, like Isaac... Notice he says brothers. It's, it's actually taking like my brothers, like my family. Hey, fam, we're fam together. We are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom has Christ, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you've been tracking along in the book of Galatians so far, you, you may have noticed that there are no imperatives up until this very moment. There are no commands. Paul doesn't say, go do this or don't do that. He's just stating what is true and asking, yes, some rhetorical questions as well as some actual questions. But there are no imperatives until this moment. And then now we get three in a row. The first two are kind of parallels of the same thing. He's saying, okay, just as we, want, we need to cast out slavery, we need to cast off the, the spiritual chains of living under the law. When we have the new covenant in front of us, don't submit to the yoke of slavery. So cast out and don't submit are in parallel. And then he states it positively. Therefore, stand firm in freedom. Well, how do you do that? Actually, don't ask that question yet. Because first, what, we, what, you, what, what Paul, Paul's point here is that you need to remember something that is actually true. And that is that who you are in Christ in already is the basis of how you live. That's why he started with, now my brothers, my family, like Isaac, we are children of promise. This is who you are. There is nothing left to earn There is no dignity, value, and worth to achieve. It doesn't matter if you get that promotion or not, or if you've been laid off or not. Your your identity is not based on that anymore. It is not based on anything you have done. It It is based on what Christ has done. That is true. I know it doesn't feel that way. I know, Paul says, that like Sarah, you are under incredible pressure to justify yourself. And I mean that both in the like kind of human ordinary experience sense as well as in the, 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 the spiritual uh, salvific sense of like to justify, to, to explain and, and dignify our existence in the way that we live. But he says you don't. You don't have to. That's slavery. Don't go back to that. That's what you needed saving from. He says instead... Also, like Sarah, we must resist the temptation by resting in God's promise, in our gospel identity, in whose we are. You are already children of promise. That's done. There is nothing left to do. Contrary to what the Judaizers are telling you, there is nothing left. You don't have to be Jewish. You can be Gentile because Jesus died for you too. So live as Christ has freed you, unburdened by self-salvation, because it always backfires. It will only beat you down over time. So anytime 
I am preaching a sermon and I am trying to communicate this thing that is really simple on paper and really hard to do in reality. I always try to, um, especially when it, it involves failure, use myself as an example. Um, and this will not be an exception to that, but I'll be honest with you, this is something that I am really in the midst of and struggling with myself. Um, I feel the yoke that we're supposed to cast off and not put back on. It's heavy, right? Um, when uh, most of you know that uh, back in January, I severely uh, dislocated my shoulder uh, on, by slipping on ice, getting out of a hot tub, not that that's relevant or important, um, and had like so severely dislocated it that I also broke a bone in the socket part of the joint and had to have surgery two weeks later. And I have been doing physical therapy the entire time since then. And when I first started physical therapy, the, the therapist said, okay, first thing we got to do is like, what is your goal? Like, what are, or what are your goals, plural it could be? Um, and I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, it should be complete healing as if this didn't happen. And she's like, okay, how is that quantified for you? I'm like, oh, okay, you're trying to get me to kind of like take some ownership and to have something that helps motivate me. I get it. Cool. I said, I want to be able to teach my sons how to swing a baseball bat. Like, I need to be able to do this. As you know, I am a Cardinals fan. Um, it's a family tradition as well. Um, and I'm like, that, like, that was the first thing that came to my mind. I didn't even have to think about it. Because the idea of not being able to teach my son to swing a baseball bat, either of them, is just like, I don't know, I don't want to think about this, right? Well, a few weeks ago during uh, therapy, I was telling her I was really you know, discouraged because I feel like I'm not gaining as much, it's not happening as fast as I'd like, which, shocker, if you know me, that's never the case. Um, but she just said, well, hey, I'll, I'll tell you this. She said, um, we're at the point in your physical therapy that we can kind of see where, how things are going and how things will likely go. And I, it's probably good to start processing that you're, you may not actually get full range of motion back but I'm going to try and help you get as close as you can. I fought tears driving home. Um, hearing that, I mean, maybe I'm just being naive or what have you, but hearing, I can imagine hearing that in my mid to late 50s would be like, okay, that's disappointing, but I'll be fine, right? Hearing that at 38 is a different story. I don't know if we'll be able to do, hit my goals. This is in of itself an, an analogy for some, like a theme in my life, but it's also been something like I've, I've realized how eerily uh, fitting it is for what I feel like I've been processing in general um, over the last year even, which is that post uh, pandemic and post our regathering in a lot of ways, I don't have the same capacity I used to. And you're like, welcome. I'm like, I, I know, right? I don't, a lot of the things that gave me joy that I was really excited about as a pastor and everything, I'm just like, God, really, we got to do that again? Um, and if I'm, if I don't have my like enthusiasm and excitement about things, like who the heck am I? Like, if you know me, that that's, that's weird for me as well as it is for you. And, and this would be hard and discouraging for anybody just to realize that, but 
I can't stop thinking about it. And it's, I can't, it's, it's, it's bothering me so much. And as I've processed it, I've realized that I have this fear that if I don't regain that capacity, that it is somehow the difference between the table succeeding and failing. That it is somehow as if it depends on me. You hear that? Or, or, or I am somehow a success or failure as a pastor or as a husband, as a Christian, as a, as a man, Right? Because I can't disappoint people. We talked about that. These are things that all of us can, like these are circumstances that, that, that can happen to anybody. Just like all the other circumstances that this may be evoking in your memory as, as I'm describing this. But whether or not it is this kind of like existential weight is the difference between whether or not it is a hard thing versus an exposed idol. Now, in the midst of that, I need to preach to myself, and this is what we have to do. This is why Paul is so blunt, right, is we have to preach to ourselves the gospel that actually rejoice or barren one or broken-shouldered or low-capacity, one who does not swing a baseball bat. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children, for the fruit of the desolate, for the, the goodness of the barren will be more than those for whom it is easy and natural. In other words, God is faithful that when, when Jesus was, um, actually, I'm going to save that for communion. <laughs> if we get it, if we really get it, i.e. the gospel, then that is going to be the most important prerequisite for anything and everything else we do. And we have to preach that to ourselves. And what's incredible about what, what Paul is, is referencing and, and pulling into his context as he's writing to the churches in Galatia and also our context now is that in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that you will have a son and his name will be Isaac. Okay, so the name of, of their heir, of their son, of the promise is, is already named, is already given to Abraham before this, okay? But in Genesis 18, God comes back to Abraham and has a meeting with him, and I'm going to read a few verses from this. They said to him, this is, this is like a, a pre-incarnate Jesus, which happens only a, a few times in the Old Testament at very pivotal moments, and this is one of them. So there's two angels and Jesus in the Old Testament saying, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I now have pleasure? Are you kidding me? After my opportunity is gone, am I now going to have, am I now going to be happy? Am I now going to have my heart's greatest longing? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. I love this. This is a great verse. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, 
but you did. <laughs> but you did laugh, actually. I, I heard you, right? Isaac means one who laughs. There's a double meaning implied in that. God knew Sarah would laugh at this promise. He says, this is, you need to name your son Isaac. And so there's a double meaning here, that when Sarah overhears this promise, she laughs in the way that we would scoff. And yet when Isaac is born, she rejoices. God knew Sarah would doubt that her spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My point in this is to say that to live as Isaac means that we trust that God's promise is actually greater than any and all of our ability, including our ability to trust in that promise. That, and I said this, you've heard me say this before, paraphrasing from, from Tim Keller, who I, he might have said this first, I have no idea, but it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, it is the object of our faith. It is God who does the saving. It is God who is faithful. We can't ever do enough. And Jesus is not unaware of that. He is not unaware of our inability, including the enoughness or the getting it where it is our getting the gospel enough. Thank God, because man, is that not a slippery slope? God knows that we are compromised, that we are enslaved to sin. That is why he came to set us free. Paul's saying, do not return to slavery in Egypt. Do not put on that yoke. Do not spurn the freedom in Christ for slavery to the, and striving in the flesh. It's not who you are. You're actually lying. You're living a lie that way. That's beautiful. Now, I'm going to jump into the Q&A uh, in just a minute, but I want to end by having a bit of a, a Mother's Day allegory because I'm going to lean into the fact that I did not realize that these two were going to coincide when I planned this out. Um, I just want to, if, if as I'm describing this, you are someone who really wants to be a mom, I just want you to know how much you're not alone in that, okay? I've, I've mentioned this before, but Hannah and I, um, have struggled with infertility. Um, the only reason why we have two kids is because of the, the ordinary miracle of, of IVF, okay? And we know what it's like to, be, to feel like we are desolate, that we are barren of hope, if not other things, okay? In fact, we've, we even, um, if, if, if you are in this really frustratingly de depressing club, um, uh, one of the things that you like to do is you like to compare the really dumb things that people have said when you share that you struggle with infertility. And Hannah and I have won every time, okay? Because we have our own kind of like opposite of Ishmael example here. No, I did not try to have a kid with somebody else. But we have literally had somebody say, you're young and don't have kids. Would you adopt the child we adopted? Because we can't handle That is terrible, okay? That would have been, actually, that also would have been terrible back then, too. Um, 
the takeaway from this, and I just want to make this really, really explicit especially, is not the takeaway from, from Sarah and living free, resting in the promise, does not mean, do not hear me say that it's going to happen if you just trust or wait long enough. Nor does it mean don't pursue medical options um, because that is, that's, that's Hagar-like um, or, or Ishmael-like striving. We would not have our kids if that were not the case. God, the point is this, that God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and Sarah, not as this kind of linear example or moral of a story to follow in order to get God to reward you, whether that's having children or, or anything else or succeeding in life, however it is that you define that. I'm saying two things, primarily. One, God's heart, God's character, and God's compassion is where we go with that unmet longing. One of our kids this morning during our little prayer huddle said, help, prayed for all of us this morning and said, help us to know that when we feel bad, we can still go to God. Amen, sister. Okay. But even more than that, let me read Genesis 17 real quick. This is God speaking to Hagar when she flees because of Sarah's abuse and striving, and God meets her there, and he says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Ishmael means God hears. As for God hears, I have heard you. It's who I am to him. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make into him a great nation. Again, almost kind of like a, a very similar thing that he has promised to Abraham. And yet there is, there, is, there is even less reason to promise this to Hagar. It is her sheer and utter helplessness that God moves toward her and then hears her. Not because of her or anything she's done or hasn't done. It's also not necessarily because she's helpful, helpless. It's actually because God is love. He's not just loving. He is love. That is a way more revolutionary statement than we give it credit for. But then in verse 21, he says, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Why does he include that? Do you think it's just to set Hagar's expectation and be like, but this isn't the same thing? No. It's because he's actually thinking about us. He was actually thinking about all of God's people in that moment. And he knew there was a lot on the line and that he was going to be, continue to be faithful to Isaac. That's what's going on in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. In other words, the legacy of God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and then Jacob and then all of God's people in Israel all the way down the line and his faithfulness to send his son. And that promise was in order to make a family in Christ. But not just to make a family, to make a family out of the parentless and the childless for the parentless and the childless. Right? This is why James, which we just got done preaching before Easter, right? we were working through James and the widows and orphans passage. 
To, this is religion pure and undefiled. It's to care for widows and their affliction and orphans. Like, that's because that's actually part of who the church is. That we are widows and orphans. We are either, we are, we are the barren, we are the desolate. And if you don't know that, then you just haven't lived fully, actually. If Jerusalem above is our mother, and that lineage is, 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 is what we are born from and reborn from, then God's church is God's family. Can I just, can I actually put this out here? Um, if you have kids, and they're at their next birthday, would you invite people who don't have kids explicitly? Because let me tell you, when Hannah and I didn't have kids and we really wanted them, one of the hardest things in the world was not being invited to their birthday parties. Especially because, you know, for good reasons, it was like, well, we don't want to make that hard. It's like, are you kidding me? You're depriving me of family. Because in Christ, like, I love your kids because they're my kids too. I hope you love my kids because they're your kids too. That's what Jesus has done. It is actually that fundamental and that revolutionary. And I know it doesn't feel like the same, and I hesitate to even say it because, trust me, I know. But without that, we'll never actually get the full gospel on this side of heaven. Okay. Now I have a lot of text coming in for questions, so let me jump into this. Sarah's behavior fits into the striving in the flesh category, even though, she, even though she's used here to represent freedom and resting in the promise. It's a bit confusing. Yes. Yeah, I, if, that might have come in earlier before I addressed this, but if not, just as a refresher, it is the fruit of our striving that Paul especially has here and, and, and also what happens um, when we don't rest in, in God's promise, Right? Um, next question here. As we all get older and our range of motion, literally and figuratively, is on the gradual decline in various ways, how can we flip that feeling of loss into a visceral experience of increasing hope and trust in God? I mean, I don't know, because, um, okay, I was going to have, I was going to answer in a funny way and then in a serious way, in the funny way, which is like, I'm not old. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But that's also part of what God is doing to me. I mean, in me, right? Speaking from very limited experience in answer to that question, I actually had the thought, I'm probably not going to do it, but I did have the thought of having tattooed on me somewhere, rejoice, O barren, one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will... One will be more than those, the one who has a husband. I cannot tell you. So if you speak Enneagram, I'm a three, right? Which means I'm very, very tempted to get my dignity, value, and worth from my achieving and from my doing and from my succeeding. That's going to be harder and harder as time goes on. And I think, I wonder maybe what God is doing now is he is helping me confront that before I need it in a far more, even more holistic way. That's my hope anyway, and the hope is that God, my ability and the range of motion on my shoulder is not going to, 
God's going to hear me. And he's going to meet me and he's going to work through me and it's actually going to be through that brokenness, literal and figurative, that he does some his most powerful things because it's not my effort that it is based on. It's actually his promises. And thank God. Last question. How should we think about the casting off of Hagar? Namely, is God just giving a temporal earthly blessing of heirs who ultimately will still be cast off from God eternally? Oh, man, I should have quit the last question. Um, this is a very good question. How should we think about casting off of Hagar? Namely, is God just giving a temporal earthly blessing of heirs who ultimately will still be cast off from God eternally? Okay, so let me address that this way, because this is really important. Uh, in Genesis 16, when I said, when I was reading from, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, let me start one verse higher, okay? Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, okay? Pause there. That is, that is using, pulling some of it verbatim, but is at, at least referring to and evoking a memory of Genesis 3, when God tells Adam and Eve after they have sinned and are being cast out of the garden, there will come from you a seed, an offspring, for whom, who, who will crush the head of the serpent. This is promise language, okay? And then, but, so that's, that, is, uh, that comes after the curse, right? It's here's the bad news, but there's good news. This is the opposite. Here's the good news, and here's the bad news that there are consequences for this. What this is doing is what it is communicating is this, is this person, Ishmael and his line, are born no differently than any of us apart from being born into redemption through Christ. Okay, so it's not being necessarily being cast off from God eternally unless there is not that trust in God's salvation and still a continued trust in self. And that seems most likely by the way that... that uh, that Genesis frames it at the end. However, they are, Ishmael and his line are no less, um, the gospel is no more close to them than it is to any of us. And so there's a yes and no there. And so there is a kind of special, like, kind of earthly blessing that God is saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep an eye out for you, right? So, very good question. Um, there's a lot here, especially because like one of the things I wrestled with this one is that because Paul is using it as an allegory, there are some aspects of the original story that are like, that's not necessarily what he's trying to illustrate here, and it's kind of difficult. But if you want to talk more about this passage or about Sarah and Hagar, please let me know. Um, I, this, it's so good. It's so rich. Um, the thing I was going to save for communion is this. Is, um, I've had the honor of, of giving what's called a charge. So it's like a mini-sermon to... Uh, when, when somebody gets ordained as a pastor for the first time. And the text that I always use is from Luke and John. I uh, can't remember where it is in Luke, but it's also in John 21. And it's the situation where on the night that Jesus was betrayed, at communion, after communion, during the dinner discussion, Peter asks, um, tells Jesus, like, you are not, I'm not, I'm never going to betray you. I'm never going to turn on you. And Jesus says, that's cute. Uh, in fact, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you are going to deny me three times. And if you know the story, you know that that happened. And as soon as the third time happened, a rooster crowed and Peter realized that he did exactly as Jesus predicted and he was devastated and he fled. 
And he, didn't, he wasn't even there when Jesus was crucified because it happened when he was still being flogged and persecuted and, and tried. Okay? The passage that I love preaching on is in John 21 when after the resurrection, Jesus is on the shore with the disciples and he says, Peter, or he says, like, you're not, you're not catching any fish. Cast it on the other side of the boat. And they do. And Peter realizes that it is Jesus because they actually are succeeding in fishing. And he throws himself into the water. He can't even wait to get to Jesus. And so he throws himself to the water and swims ashore and beats the rest of the disciples there because he definitely did not beat them to the cross. And while they're sitting there and having breakfast, an ordinary thing, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus. I just threw myself into the water. Did you see that? Peter says, and then Jesus says, feed my sheep. He says again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. I, we just talked about the water. Okay. Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Why are you asking me three times? He says, feed my sheep. Three times he calls Jesus into repentance and an opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel again, that Christ does not cast him out, that Christ not only doesn't cast him out, he calls him into deeper ministry and leadership and that that is not a disqualifier from that. And if it's not a disqualifier from leadership, failing, be, failing to, in our helplessness, it is not a disqualification. You are not cast out by God either, okay? And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, my body, this bread is my body, it is broken for you. I know you are broken. That's why I'm here. That's why this is happening. He likewise took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, a covenant of freedom, not of slavery. It is given for the remission of sins. It is given for the redemption of slaves so that they can be set free. And this is once and for all. You can't go back. I got you. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. In other words, you proclaim what is ultimate reality until I make that your experience fully and completely. I know this is a hard time to live in. It's a difficult age. And I know the world and everything that surrounds us tells us we are not God's new creation. That's why you need this. That's why you need the bread and wine. That's why you need the blood and body. Because that is our nourishment. That is our reminder. And Jesus is present in the midst of that to reassure his people. That is beautiful. If that is your hope, not even a strong hope, just eat a little bit. This is for you. As soon as eight or ten of you are up here, as Danny's kicking us back out into worship, um, we'll take the elements together as a family because that's who we are. And we'll look each other in the eye and it'll be awkward and I'll stumble over my words again like I do every week. It'll be awesome because Jesus is alive and he's here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Your grace isn't just sufficient. It is more than enough. It is, it is everything. It is the only hope we have. It is our freedom. It is a promise that has been fulfilled and a promise that will be completed when you return. So Lord, sustain us, nourish us with your gospel. We pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.